Live from the soapily beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. The following program is produced by Magic Man Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Welcome to True Crime Uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Mark C.G. Boyer, fact checker, is here. Hello. 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 Uh, Howard Lapidus is with Don Waldman on the island of hiatus. Oh, he's, he's <laughs> hanging out with his son. Yeah, he's getting um, a baseball game, I think. I spent a lot of time in Las Vegas. You know, I used to live in Las Vegas, live in what they called Naked City. Now, they called it Naked City because back in the old days, that's where the showgirls used to recline out there on Natural Our Juice. I thought it was because I was running down Las Vegas Boulevard. Well, you were, no doubt, I'm sure. There there are police in Las Vegas. I've interacted with them on more than one occasion as they pulled me over for such crimes as we saw you leaving the... uh, that particular apartment complex where I happen to live. <laughs> Why were you there? I live there. Well, you shouldn't go there. <laughs> we have someone who knows a lot about Las Vegas police. Deborah Gauthier, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? That's correct, Burl. That's amazing. See, I usually just perform French and not speak it, so I'm proud of myself. <laughs> you you know what it's like to be in the Las Vegas Police Department. One thing, I, I you have a brand new book out called uh, Bright Lights, Dark Places, which is a fascinating and informative book, not only about personal transformation, but how to put up with a whole bunch of BS that I can't imagine how you ever put up with. Well, we put up with you, Burl. Well, that's true. <laughs> This woman went to the police academy. Now, I, years ago, I was talking to Mike Grimes, who was head of uh, a homicide task force of Anchorage. And he said, all different uh, professions have a code of ethics. He says, except police, we have no, no ethics. <laughs> we have no code. <laughs> but yet, when she went to uh, you know, the academy, and I have this in front of me, she had to assign or you know recite this code of ethics and i just want to quote a little bit of it uh, to you and our beloved audience as a law enforcement officer my fundamental duty is to serve mankind to safeguard lives and property to protect the innocent against deception the weak against oppression or intimidation and the peaceful against violence or disorder and to respect the constitutional rights of all men to liberty equality and justice and if I know something confidential, I'll keep my big mouth shut. <laughs> was there any relationship between this code of ethics and what you experienced as a police officer? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, it was, Burl, it was, you know, that's what I think was so shocking to me because I really took that code very, you know, very serious. I mean, we took a, we swore an oath to office. We rose, you know, we raised our right hand. It was it was uh, actually performed in, the, uh, in a, one of the judicial offices. Uh, by the county clerk, and I, you know, I took that as exactly what it said, that I was going to be doing, that was the ideals that I was going to be working under, and, you know, I was fresh out of college, so I thought, Oh, you were a a dewy-eyed sociological virgin. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much so, yes. So it was shocking that everything that I went through was opposed to that code of ethics. And the bad guys, I discovered, were not on the street, but oftentimes were in the department working with me. So. Now, we, had a, we had a guest a couple of weeks ago whose uh, sole purpose of uh, joining the police force was to facilitate his criminal activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I mean, he's known as the most popular corrupt cop in America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I gave him that title. Right, right. <laughs> uh, it, it is a shock. I, I've I've uh, had another uh, police officer that I interviewed for one of my books say the reason I wear a bulletproof vest is the front is for the guys on the street, the bulletproof in the back is to protect me from the other cops. <laughs> Good point. Yes. So, yes. uh, and you were, and you were, and you still are, according to all our research, a female. Correct. That's true. And well, this was unusual at the time, was it not? It was. You know, back in 1980 when I joined the department, they the year before they had a height and weight requirement prior to 1980. So you had, a, I think it was like 5'8", 175. That was the minimum uh, standard. So, you know, obviously that would have eliminated me. I'm about 5'2"-ish and maybe 110 pounds at the time. So... The uh, somebody had filed a complaint with the Department of Justice, and that was that was lifted. And I came in the very next year and was hired under the same standards as the men. So oh, so there now, was there was resentment against you oh and uh, sexual prejudice against you, gender oh, yeah. prejudice. The minute your cute little frame sallied forth <laughs> through the door, that is so true. And I had no idea that being the first one under those standards. As a pioneer, would cost it, it came with a price. It would ultimately cost me everything. Yeah, try walking into a schoolroom down in Alabama, nineteen sixty-four. Same sort of thing. Except you didn't have people out in front yelling at you when you walked in. Right, right. But when you got in there, how long did it take you to find out that you weren't exactly uh, getting the welcome wagon? Oh my gosh! It started in the academy. You know, I was getting I was getting ripped from the recruits. You know, I remember the first, uh, we had an orientation the first day uh, before the academy actually started. And they were issuing our equipment and they had the guns, you know, our weapons and all the stuff that we were going to use, the tools of our trade. And they had a, the sergeant came in with his staff, all these, you know, flat, flat top guys that looked like, uh, you know, DIs in the military. Anyway, they came in and started yelling. One of the exercises was to break down our weapon and reassemble it because we were going to be having inspections every morning. So they did this drill, showed us how to disassemble the weapon. It was a semi-automatic. Now, I was familiar with guns. My dad was military, Burl, mm-hmm. but it was mostly long long guns. Yeah, like M1s you know, or stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. So Did you ever lose you know, a thumb taking apart an M1? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, you know, like a revolver. But this is a semi-automatic. So when he, when he called Tom, we had to reassemble the, we- the weapon in two minutes or less. And so he hit the stopwatch and, you know, I was scrambling around trying to get it all together. Well, <laughs> I didn't make the time. Well, it was like, you, you could have heard a pin drop. The guy walks over there, the sergeant starts grabbing my long hair, it was down to my waist, screaming in yellow profanities, oh, what's she going to do, you know, out there on the, on the street? And his hair better be cut off by Monday morning. And anyway, long story short, when I went out to the firearms range to shoot, Man, I shot, I was probably the, t- I was second in uh, shooting in my class mm. out of 50 guys, uh, including myself. So, you know, it has nothing to do with size, obviously. It's just finesse and skill when you're, when you're dealing with weapons like that. But, uh, but yeah, it, it started there. I mean, they were not friendly then in the academy. They gave me hell. And then when I got out on the street, you know, it was more. I, I could never prove myself enough. How was your training officer at the time? I had four training officers. I'll tell you what. They were old school guys. They were probably the most senior guys on the squads. 
uh, good news is they didn't really want me there, but they tolerated me. But the really good news is they were really good cops. So I really learned some good skills from these guys. Excellent. And they were advanced skills like putting together search warrants and, and cases, you know. So they taught me a lot, but I had to put up with their stuff, if you know what I mean. Right. But they gave me a fair shot. I mean, they, they ranked me on, they rated me on how I performed, which which I was very grateful for. Yeah, they, they could have really messed with you worse if they wanted yeah, to. Yeah, right. We're, uh, we're on the internet, so you can you can just be yourself. You don't have to well, she is herself, and she's charming, even with her short hair. <laughs> you don't have to hide behind <laughs> infant business. No, I'm not hiding. <laughs> she's not hiding. She's well-spoken. <laughs> Speaking of well-spoken, even, even in training, you had to deal with dildo. No, uh, I'm sorry to say. I beg your pardon? <laughs> well, one oh, day, can I one sign of, up for this training? No, 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 no. Why one day one of her fellow recruits forgot his weapon on the bench. Yeah. yeah. And what did they do to this poor guy? That poor guy. He was another. I mean, we were all right out of college. I mean, this guy, you know, he was wet behind the ears, too. But he forgot his weapon. Walked out to inspection with an empty holster. Uh-oh. And they just tore this kid up. So the next day, he had to come out and carry a dildo for a week. That was his weapon, and he had to carry this thing in his holster uh, during inspection. And during the whole entire day. I mean, But you can imagine. It was, he was humiliated, I'm sure. It was, humili- it was humiliating for him. I was embarrassed for him. It was embarrassing to me. Um, and then, you know, during the inspection, these guys that were sitting, you know, other recruits sitting, uh, standing in inspection with me, decided to grab the dildo out of his holster and start rubbing my leg and making all these vulgar noises. <laughs> so Sounds was, like outlaw radio. <laughs> Right? <laughs> so it was crazy, but, uh, yeah, that was the environment I worked. That was before, you know, uh, hostile work environment. Yes, in, in I would have filed a, a case on that one. Yeah. But then you get out of training and you go to the real deal. Yeah. Uh, what's Black Hand Day? Oh, my gosh. That was a, a phrase they coined in the academy when they were going to wash out a recruit. So a black hand would literally drop down on this one-way uh, mirrored window from the academy staff's office. It would drop down in the window. So we knew that day somebody was going to wash out. And then they would march in, the training officers would march in, the TAC officers we called them, with a big aquarium that housed Dr. Doom, which was a huge boa constrictor. Oh, lovely. Yeah, and then behind them was a, one of the other TAC officers carried a... Um, like a cage full of mice, and there were the same number of mice as recruits when we started with 50 mice. Gee, I wonder if this is a metaphor. (laughs) I don't know, but you know what I'm saying? They would literally drop one of these, get one of these little tiny mice out of the cage, drop it into the aquarium with Dr. Doom, and then we'd have to sit there and watch with sweat running down our face, this little mouse jumping up and down, freaking out in the cage, you know, because this Dr. Doom was now on the the move, stalking this little mouse to, to kill it. And that represented one of us. We had no idea who it was. And after this whole ordeal, and when Dr. Doom had the little mouse down in its throat, the, the tack officers would then come in and snatch someone's uh, unsuspecting rookie's, you know, books and things off his desk and command him to follow him out. And then they were washed out of the academy. We lost. We started with 50 recruits, bro. We only graduated 21 Metro officers. We washed out over Boy, 50% that's of almost, the class. That's almost like law school. <laughs> Paper chase. Here we yeah. Go. <laughs> right? Yeah, they're going to wash you out. Yeah. Well, so then you actually go to the Las Vegas Police Department. Correct. And if you thought it was fun in training. Oh, boy. 
Now, how long were you there before you were offered the wonderful position of, uh, what do they call it, community relations or whatever it was called? Uh, community Relations Bureau. I was there 17 years. And how long were you in uh, Las Vegas PD before you got that position? 17 years. I was. I was. Uh, I did 21 years on the police. Oh, okay. I thought. I thought for some reason I thought it was early. Cause whatever department it was where you went there, where it was a, just a mess. The budget was yes. screwed up. The yes. floor was filthy. Correct. No one knew what they were doing. Whoever had it before was running their business out of there. Correct. <laughs> but we got 17 years to cover before. That. Yeah, I got. You survived 17 years of the old boys network. Yes. I mean, they were. They were even hanging dildos from your locker. Yeah. Yeah, that happened after an incident with one of the rookies that I was working with. Actually, it wasn't a rookie. It was an officer that I, I was working with downtown. Now, downtown in the old days was underneath City Hall. Mm-hmm. That was our downtown station. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately familiar with this location. <laughs> you are. You, you are. Can you explain? <laughs> um, well, there may have been a period of time uh, where a friend of mine, May have uh, gone to the uh, Four Queens or the Mint or the Nugget and gambled underage. (laughs) Some friend of yours. I wouldn't condone this activity. (laughs) Yes. And that that was where the jail was, so yeah, you would know that place. (laughs) His friend would. His friend would know the place. His friend would know the place, yeah. Right. Uh, wait a second, wait a second. Uh, <laughs> you had a couple uh, in those uh, intervening 17 years before you got to uh, that wonderful position. Uh, you almost got killed a few times on the street. Correct. Uh, tell the story about the, the guy who comes at you with the car. Oh, my gosh, yeah, that was that's probably one of my closest calls. We, we responded um, to a domestic violence that was out in kind of a rural area just south of the Las Vegas Strip. So it's out there, you know, in, in more of a rural community. Right. We went out there on this call. And Metro, our police department, we work solo. So we don't have two-man units other than training units and, um, and any special assignments. So we work by ourselves. But anyway, I went on this call, and my backup finally arrived. We went in, handled the domestic violence, and as I was coming out, I had parked my car along just on the dirt shoulder of this road in front of the house and it was like a almost like it was a really narrow road because it was out there there was no street lights just a real rural area as i was getting in my car i look ahead and i see these headlights coming down the street towards me at a high rate of speed Uh as i'm watching the dust is flying up i can see it from the headlights as this truck this vehicle swerving back and forth in the lane i'm thinking oh my gosh drunk driver and i had already turned on my car my headlights and i was this is all happening in a split second i have to decide now okay this is a drunk he's had a right for me do i get out of the car or do i get out stay in the car and hope for the best well he's as he's approaching and i mean this is seconds i hear my partner Dad, look out! Great, right? He's he's still with the the couple in front of their house on the porch. As this vehicle comes right up to me, I dove out of my car last minute, and it was like a chicken wire fence, like a real thin fence around this guy's property, and I pressed against it. It was just enough room between me and my car for this vehicle, which was a huge, uh, it was like a Ford pickup. It came around the corner. It, it dodged my vehicle, you know, avoiding my headlights, and went literally between me and the car. 
and Oof. it was it came through me and it hit my I I, guard, I braced myself for the impact because I thought I'm go- I'm gone this is it game over because the headlights are right at me and I'm just pressed against the fence there's nowhere to go it's all happening so fast sky was going like 70 miles an hour Jeez. well anyway it hits my arm with the side view mirror on this big truck just about dragged me off the fence and heads down doesn't even break and heads down yeah. the road like nothing happened well he took my car door off he just literally <laughs> ripped the car door off my car well, what do I do I do what any rookie would do. I jumped in my car. I spun the car around. I turned my red lights and sorry. I chased this guy without a without a uh, door. <laughs> a door, yeah. And so all you hear on the radio is, you know, I'm screaming on top of my lungs, and the you know the wind's flying oh, through. Yeah. You can't hear anything I'm saying, and they're just going, "Oh my gosh, what's going on?" And I'm chasing these guys, and when I actually chased them, caught up to them going to give the plate and then they blacked out went out into the desert and uh, eventually our helicopter unit came out into the desert and found these guys and, and we took them into custody i the bet they was, faced a variety of exciting charges not to mention damage oh to your my, vehicle well, he was he was he was on parole he was just out of prison <laughs> but he, he was homesick <laughs> right and he was all he was drugs he was on drugs and alcohol so the guy was just he was just in the in the zone and i mean that was probably the closest call i I, you know, I've been in some other tight situations, but that was probably the... I don't think I slept for three days. Oh, God, no, you probably had nightmares about flying car doors. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, I still get a little alarmed when I'm on a dark street and head, I see headlights coming down the road. Now, so. being as you're, you're a diminutive female, shall we say. Yes. Lithe and lovely. You're in a situation where you're arresting a guy who's enormous. I mean, his arms are bigger than your thighs, not that you pause to measure them. But but this guy is big, and there's a warning on him that he fights officers, that he will put up a fight. Correct. And yet, when you go up to him, what happens? Well, he, you know, that was another call. It was a car stop, actually. No no tags on the... Uh, no license plate, no tags on the vehicle. So I pull him down, don't know what I'm walking up into. And those are scary when you're an officer because usually you can do a run on the plates and kind of have an idea what you're dealing with. But for this guy, I was walking in cold. And when I got him out of the vehicle, uh, he was this big black guy. Um, and I knew he'd been in prison because he was all buff. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is not looking good. But anyway, I ran him, and he comes back. The dispatcher came back. Uh, he's a wanted subject for armed robbery. Oh, boy. So I'm thinking, oh, great. And he's looking at me. He's on the hood of my car. I've got him out of the car. And he knows now that I know he's wanted. So at that point, you cannot ever show fear when you're on the street. And I'm not very big. And it's all a matter of it's, a, it's tactics, it's strategy. You've got to work really smart when you're my size, obviously. But you, you can never show any fear. Now, I could have backed off, called back up, and, you know, hoped for the best. But this guy was sizing me up, and I'm thinking, you know what? I need to go home at night. So... What I did was I walked around to this guy, and I, I kind of called his bluff. I go, you know, hey, I'm out here by myself, just a little concerned. I just make sure everything's cool. I'm just going to check you real quick. Just kind of called his bluff, and I did a speed cuffing technique on him, and he was in cuffs, like, really fast, and he was as surprised as I was, and he just looked at me. <laughs> I said, you're under arrest for, for armed robbery, and he said, yes. He goes, yes, ma'am, which I was surprised. He called me ma'am. So I put him in my car, and back in the day, we didn't have cages. Mm-hmm. So this guy sat literally right in the passenger seat next to me, and I had him all strapped in. And as I'm walking around the corner to get back in my police car and wiping my sweaty hands on my uniform pants, I get in beside this guy, and, I, and I'm looking at him. And I said, hey, I have a question for you. The dispatcher said that you had a flag on you, a caution that you would fight officers if arrested. I said, why didn't you fight me? 
And he just looked at me and he said, Ma'am, this is the first time I've been to jail without a beating. Woo. Yeah. Wow, that gives you an insight into what he had experienced at the hands of the police department. We're going to take a 60-second break. We'll be right back with Deborah Gauthier, author of the new book, Bright Lights, Dark Places. 60 seconds. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. The smoking, drinking, interrupting. Did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available at the iTunes App Store. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. He's not here. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. He's here. Boyer. I'm here. And sometimes Marie. Who isn't here? Becky Esquire. She's buckled. Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. He's not. He's not. In turn, is produced by Lori Downey Jr. He's hot. All right, are we back to True Crime Uncensored with the legendary Burl Bear, Mark Boyer, and Deborah Gauthier, author of the new book, Bright Lights, Dark Places, available now from uh, Tate Publishing. Is that correct? Correct. And I'm on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can get it anywhere books are sold. And they should get several copies. They make wonderful holiday gifts. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, let's get back to this beating business. Here, this guy says the first time he's ever been taken to jail without getting beat up first. Yeah. Well, then we move on to the, the next story in your book, and we find uh, that you got somebody, and the cops decided to beat him up right then in front of you. Yeah, yeah, that was really unfortunate. You know, we had a, I was working swing shift. We worked 3 to, uh, 3 p.m. to 1 a.m. And then the graveyard guys would come in after us, and there was a little bit of overlap there. They'd come in about 11. Anyway, there was a graveyard squad out there that we actually called the Black Glove Squad. Oh, boy. Because they were known for excessive violent force against people. So that guy, one of those guys came to back me up. I had a kid uh, on my uh, hood of my car that was, um, he was under arrest. And uh, one of those about guys a 16-year-old kid on a stolen vehicle? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the story. Yeah, and the, one of the officers from that Black Glove squad came to back me up. And as he walked out, got out of his car, walked up, didn't even talk to me, just came up and uh, said something to the kid and then punched him in the face. Ooh. And I'm looking at him like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm teaching him a lesson. And I, <laughs> what, what lesson is this? Well, yeah, right. And his cheeks swelling. The kid's got you know terror in his eyes. And I'm just thinking, what you know, what what's this about? So I, you know, I told the guy, I said, look, you lay hands on him, he's yours. You take him to jail. And the, and the guy, he just looked at me and he goes, he just ignores me, gets in his car and takes off. So I called his sergeant and I said, look, here's what happened. So I was ordered to take the kid to the hospital, and you know, and and and. You know, back then, if you said anything, you were a snitch. Yeah. I mean, they would make your life hell. And uh, that's, you know, I got that label early on because I didn't play like the boys. And I'm, you know, and not all the guys were like this. Hear me out. I mean, we got some great men and women that, that do police work in this, across this nation that deserve our support and our respect because they have a very tough job. But I'm talking about the few renegades out there that make it bad for all of us. 
Well, when you went when you went to get on the SWAT team. Oh yeah. Uh, I got the book right in front of me. It says your sergeant uh, Tom calls you in and says you came in at number two. I was really pulling for you in there. He added, yeah. while I was defending you and challenging their concerns about having a woman on the SWAT team, the commander burst out and said, "I'm not having any niggers or broads on my SWAT team." Yeah, that kind of ended the discussion. That's correct. Yeah, he outraped my sergeant, Sergeant Tom, and he was a great guy. He was my first sergeant. He was on my he was actually on my oral board for uh, when I tested for police department. So this guy, he was six foot six, gentle giant. I called him. He was just a great guy and really rallied behind me. And had it not for been for Tom, I probably would have, I probably wouldn't have made it through that first year of training. I would have quit because it was so intense what I was going through and the stress in itself. Just becoming a police officer, you know, learning the ropes, working the street, and all that tension there. But then what I was going through internally and not having the support and not having the backing, not knowing if I would have a backup when I went on calls. It was yeah, why why wouldn't you have backup? I mean, you're a police officer. If you call in for backup, uh, they should send it, shouldn't they? Well, they should unless they don't want to, they don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a problem. <laughs> right? So, you know, and I, and I kind of got that, that uh, well, you know, I had an incident when I was Gosh, right out of training, you know, when I first got that assignment downtown, uh, it was a very senior squad, and I had one of the officers start stalking me on calls and just doing some really sexually things towards me, you know, pressing against me and just harassing me. And I told him to knock it off, but he would never knock it off, and uh, he was caught, actually, pulling one of his little things with, uh, with his lieutenant. He actually saw this guy, you know, doing his thing with me so and i i mean you know rubbing up against me well they say you ought to file a complaint yeah he he ordered me to file the complaint i'm like but if you do that you're doomed yeah because you file a complaint you're done and this guy forced me he was a a lieutenant he ordered my sergeant to order me to sign this complaint against the guy because he didn't like the guy he wanted to get rid of the cop which uh you know i didn't want to be a part of so you're putting yourself in a real bad situation oh bad and after that incident and all his buddies rallied behind him and all of a sudden here's a girl cop you know causing problems and filing complaints they didn't care that i didn't file it was a lieutenant they didn't care about any of that and after that i mean they made my life miserable i mean every time i got on the radio burl they would click the mic so they would cover my radio transmission so i mean if i were out there making a car stop they would click when i was giving my location so nobody knew where i was oh wonderful going on calls uh even if they were assigned my backup they would they would conveniently come really late in other words they would delay backup so that i'd go on calls i mean work in the naked city was all gang turf back then it was all marilitos and i'd go on fight calls by myself i mean it was you know who you know who alerted me to what was going on my african-american brothers the um they they came up to me because they'd already been through all the nonsense. Oh yeah, because I mean, this guy saying I don't want any niggers or broads on my SWAT right? team. Uh, the black guys already know what the atmosphere is. Right, and so they come up to me and they go, "Girl, you're on your own out here, and we, you know, we're we gonna we're gonna co watch your back a little bit, but we can't let anyone know we're doing this because they've already threatened us. But you you're rolling out here by yourself." Your back's uncovered. I'm thinking, oh, great. But, you know, they'd already been through it, and they go, just, you know what, just suck it up, just weather it. it it'll pass if you just let them know you're not going to quit. Well, you had to hang in there a hell of a long time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, I was still hanging you got in there a spine as right? I mean, this would have broken a lot of people. 
I mean, they yeah. would have just said, I'd rather go work at the 7-Eleven serving up big gulps and uh, put up with this crap. And wait for the midnight robbery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it was intense. You know, but back in the day, I mean, that was, you know, when I, when I raised my right hand and took that oath, I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I made an oath. I made a, a vow. And I said, this is what I meant to do, and I'm going to do it. And I had, and you know what? I knew that I was paving the way for other women. So if they got rid of me, if they took me out, it would affect women behind me for years. And it did. Even to this day, we still have a very, we still have a very small number of women in law enforcement. Um, and it's sad because they've even done studies that as departments bring on more women, hire more women, and even out their force, you've got less use of force complaints, less liability, less, you know, money defending lawsuits. Yeah, a lot of people don't know they can sue the city when the cops do weird stuff. Correct. And, I, and it amazes me. And I have talked to cops who have told me or bragged about all sorts of horrible illegal stuff they did. And I said, well, doesn't anyone file a complaint? I said, well, the city carries insurance for that. We don't even pay attention. Correct. And that's mm -hmm. scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you she worked, you worked uh, my stomping ground, Naked City. I did. I was just in Naked City. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was and just And you there. were in Las Vegas, too. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> when I first moved to Las Vegas, I went there on a, to do a project for the Nevada Historical Society that didn't actually wind up working out and got a surprise divorce at the same time and wound up on the street. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I was taken in, not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense, by the stereotypical uh, hooker with a heart of gold who said, you can stay at my place. Never did sleep with her, <laughs> which is probably smart. But uh, we, right. be we became good friends. In fact, I have an interview with, uh, with her up on the Internet, uh, former Krakow, as we say. Telling about her adventures in, oh uh, in Naked City. And as she says, the, uh, uh, I spent two years working on a book that uh, and I lost everything that I did my research on because it was all stolen, called Shadow of the Stratosphere. And she said mm -hmm. that as long as I can look up and see the stratosphere, I know who I am and what I am, living in the shadow of the strat there in Naked right. City. And it's a, it's a whole little, it's almost like, uh, uh, what do you call it, a, uh, what do you say? call that uh well, my mind just went blank where you let kind of let things slide a bit you know where you have an area where you know everybody's doing stuff that's illegal but you can't arrest everybody there won't be anybody living there anymore right 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 <laughs> and so you just kind of you know harass a few people the last time she was arrested with and went to jail was for not having a light on her bicycle oh boy i don't think they do that to most people and, right. as, and as they arrest, she said, I haven't been arrested anything for two years since I cleaned up my act. Why are you taking me to jail for a bicycle light now? You know, this right. isn't five years ago when I was working the street. Mm -hmm. But I guess once you're on the list. Yes. You probably had some fun times in Naked City. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was it was crazy. You know, that was right after Carter let all the Marilitos into our country. Uh -huh. And those Cuban Marilitos were all living in that area uh, behind the stratosphere. Right. Uh, so it was intense. And, um, you know, I... Let me think if I can think of a... I have a few stories. Yeah, what are you um, talking about the fact that some of the was sangria, sangrinista, is that what it's called, Mark? The uh, South of Central American and Cuban religious thing with the... Oh, no, that's Santeria. Santeria. Santeria, yeah. yes. Yeah. And that's, if you're not used to that, that can kind of shock you. <laughs> it, it is. You know, I walked in on... We, we went in on a call. It was a... Uh, I think it was a burglary call, and 
and uh, the back window was open on this apartment. So my partner and I went around, and we ended up making entry and called a code red. We went into this apartment, crawled inside, and inside the apartment, this is one of these Cubans' apartments, they had fish hooks, like fish netting, like a fish net, Mm -hmm. all throughout the apartment, like on the walls, on the ceilings, and then they had fish hooks on each of the corners of this uh, you know, big netting, really. And so there was all tape, it was all uh, tacked onto the walls. And when we went in there, I'm just thinking, what the heck? And I've got my flashlight walking around this apartment, and my partner gets caught up in this stuff. He gets pinned against the wall. <laughs> I considered leaving him there, but then I decided I would cut the guy out, you know, out of the netting. So, But it was weird. You know, they had, um, they had these altars. And then they would usually kill, like, an animal. They would like sacrifice a, an animal a, to their gods, and they would usually... We it's, would it's a bizarre mix of Catholicism and uh, old Buddhism, tribal... Yeah. Serpent and the rainbow. Yeah, saw that. Yeah, it's some weird stuff. You know, they would have, like, a chicken hanging from a door frame with a, a spear through the chicken. It, it was alive, and it was killed alive. But it was just some, just a really weird culture. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, they didn't speak English. So, you know, I had one, uh, you'll like this because there, a lot of the showgirls, you were saying a lot of the uh, cocktail waitresses lived back in those apartments because they would walk to the strip to go right. to work. And we had one of these guys terrorizing the neighborhood. Uh, we had a series of rapes, violent rapes, Ooh. where this guy, the guy, his M.O. was he would follow these gals home. And when they would get ready, put their key in their apartment door to go inside, he would violently push them into the apartment and violently sexually assault them, rob them, and leave on, on foot. So he lived somewhere in the area, but one night, and he had done, I don't know, probably 15 to 20 of these things, and we were looking for him. He was on, he was on our hot sheet, our, our sheet that we get every, every night with all the crimes, and we were, you know, I was trying to put a pattern, okay, when's the guy hit, what day is, what day is he most prone to, you know, I was trying to strategize when this guy would hit. But I kind of would hang in that area during the times that he would usually hit these gals. And it was when they were getting off work. And I was uh, on patrol, and sure enough, here comes the code red beep on the radio. And it was a, it was a, rob, it was a uh, sexual assault that had just occurred in the area. And uh, I was right around the corner. Ah. And I said, okay, where's this guy going to go? He's on foot. We knew he was on foot. And I blacked out my police car, went in, a, in an alleyway, like just adjacent to the apartment complex where this gal lived. And here I look up the, you know, at the uh, end of the alleyway, and here comes a silhouette of a man running down the alley. I'm like, uh-huh. oh, it's him. And, I mean, I threw my red lights and, you know, everything on, my lights on, my headlights, high beams, and I rushed at this guy. And, I mean, with, I slid within inches of him, and he's just standing there like deer in the headlight. And I jump out of the car, draw down on the guy with, you know, get him on gunpoint. And turns out they brought the gal. This gal was, she was the only one. The reason we got him is because she was the only one that had enough uh, composure to dial 911. The other gals would, you know, call a friend or, you right. know, they'd be freaking out. But, and by the time we got the call, it was like, it was a cold call and the guy was gone. Right. But this gal immediately called 911, and that's why it was within seconds, minutes after the actual crime that I caught this guy right in that alleyway. So, and sure enough, he was a Cuban Marilito, and she came by, identified him, and then we did him on, uh, gosh, probably just about all the other, um, with accepting maybe one or two other sexual assaults, uh, these gals all identified him in a lineup. And you know the sad thing, 
Earl was, he ne- we never went to court on this guy. Because oh. he was a Marilito. They just shipped him back to Miami. They didn't so ship him no back. justice, and these gals were ruined. That's so this a, guy uh, brutally beat them and raped them. I mean, they were just... Wow, if he, if he was from out of the country, why didn't they send him back to Cuba? Well, because we had that whole thing going on, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. Country, you know, no, I, I, yeah, no, I remember that uh, I interviewed the guy who brought the first Cuban gang to Las Vegas. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, Louis. He's, he's still there, and he's very reputable now. Uh-huh. But uh, he, I got has some incredible stuff from him. Uh, sadly, all the interviews I did with the guy about the first Cuban gang to Las Vegas, a lot of other these people that, you know, won't talk to cops, won't talk to attorneys, they'll talk to me. That's perfect. And uh, sadly, everything I had uh, was in an apartment. The apartment was broken into. I had everything on backup disk, but my computer was stolen and all the backup mm-hmm. disks were stolen. Mm-hmm. All I have left is the uh, the prologue, which I had wisely uh, emailed to somebody. <laughs> so, yeah, this is before there were clouds and I didn't have the brains to like send it to myself on Yahoo Mail. Right. Uh, so I've been trying to get uh, to redo the interviews because I was... Uh, Mentioned, what, what years were you, was this? We're talking about the 80s, the 90s. What uh, what time period are you working in that area of Naked City? Oh, the Naked City? I was on the department from 80 to 2001. So those were my first probably four or five years on the department. So 19, probably 82 or 81 through 85. Yeah. In 85, I was promoted to sergeant. Now, uh, next week on the show, we have Dr. Scott Bond again, uh, who was formerly vice president of NBC and then went on to become a sociologist and criminologist. And in his book, Moral Panic, uh, which was his doctoral thesis, actually, uh, wow. when he explains moral panic, he gives Las Vegas as an example. He says, wow. if you interview people in Las Vegas, they believe that uh, gang crime, Latino gang crime, was up like 400% in the 1980s. And the cops got 13 new cars and a gang interdiction unit. And yet, if you look at the actual crime statistics, there was 3% of the crimes were Latino gangs, 3% of the drugs before, during, and after the moral panic. There was no crime increase, but it certainly worked well for the cops to get 13 new cars. Right. And uh, that was uh, how we defined where you you have a situation where someone benefits in the power structure. The uh, the uh, audience, the newspaper readers or, or uh, uh, people who watch TV are given uh, scary information all of a sudden for a short period of time. And they get some resolution passed or some budget increase and then... <laughs> well, it just kind of stops the increase that. helped. The increase helped. Increase what? The increase helped. Yeah. Yeah, see, crime's down. Yeah. See, it worked. Now. It worked. <laughs> it's back down to 3%. <laughs> you know, I took out, I took out elephant insurance. Did I you? haven't been attacked by one elephant since. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bet that's a fascinating study. Yeah, it is. You can, the, it's called Moral Panic by uh, Dr. Scott Bond. And uh, uh, he has all, all, the, uh, all the documentation in there. And he uses that in order to instruct the readers on what moral panic is by giving an example before he gets into his major thesis where he studied uh, the sociological concept of moral panic as it relates to uh, America's entering the Iraq War. Wow, yeah. uh, which was a fascinating study, and he's a, uh, an interesting guy, and he'll be on next week again because he's it's just so much fun. So your yeah. career, your career is, is uh, despite all of this, moving forward. You make sergeant, yes, and then I'll, you know it starts to fall apart. What uh, what happened? Well, I started moving up the ranks. That's what happened. 
you know. And it's well, that's like not Sergeant- good. Don't you know your place? <laughs> right. You know, I, I made sergeant relatively quick in five years. It took me nine years to make lieutenant. I kept conveniently coming at the bottom of the list. Amazing. And, you know, it's because I, you know, I... I'm really good at leadership, and I knew there was, you know, they needed balance in the workforce, and, and I, took, I had a perspective that the men didn't have, so they needed me in there, but they didn't want me in there. So what happened was, as I moved up the ranks, uh, some of the good old boys that I had had run-ins with were moving up the ranks either with me or they were ahead of me, and, you know, it was just a matter of time. Uh, they weren't going to have any of me up in those ranks, and... When I was about, I made lieutenant finally when one of the, my African-American lieutenant decides to pull the plug at the last minute because he had had enough, and he actually pulled the plug a little early for retirement. He'd been on like 36 years. The guy's, you know, he'd been there for the long haul. He's one of the early uh, uh, black officers on the police department. But anyway, he had... He had gone through his mess, and he just said, I've had enough. And one day he was driving home. He called me, and he said, hey, I'm, I'm retiring. You can have my bars. Because mm. I was sitting number one on the list, and they, when there's an opening, they can't just pass you over. So they had to promote me to lieutenant. And when they did, oh, my gosh, I paid for that. I paid for that promotion. And, uh, you know, I, I went ahead and just – and you can read about the stories in my book. I mean, you'll see – uh, just the adversity. I mean, and it, it just, the uh, opposition increased, it seemed, the higher I went in the ranks. And when I was about to be a captain, they had an outside assessment team come in and run our assessment center. And so it was unbiased. The, sar- the sheriff had no say in who they ranked and how they ranked because they went strictly on the performance of all of the components of the assessment center. I came out number one, hands down. Mm. And the sheriff at the time told a briefing room full of men that I found out later, as long as he was a sheriff, I would never be a captain. Whoa. Yeah. So it took him, within a year, he had one of his boys start covertly recording my uh, conversations, and that was when I was a bureau commander, uh, and set me up on a bogus discrimination charge, like I'm discriminating against a white male officer, right, a sergeant. And that set the tone for retaliation. He got me on tape saying at the end of the day when I was just enough of his stuff and he was harassing me, but he was recording the whole thing. It was just all a setup. Uh, and he had me on tape saying, hey, Chuck, I've had enough of your stuff. If you don't like it, you can transfer. They said that was retaliation because he filed a discrimination. Meanwhile, you're going through eight times as much crap. Correct. Correct. And you know what? I lost two ranks. I not only was not promoted to captain, I was demoted back to a sergeant. Listen to this. A sign graveyard and my call sign, I am not kidding you, was 666. I think that's a subtle hint they didn't like you. I think so. Well, you know, I... I don't like getting too biblical or chronical. Is there such a word? I don't know. But the the sacred scriptures of the world's diverse religions have been my hobby for over forty years. Wow! And uh, I had posted on Facebook one the other day that from the Quran where it, where it said, "Do you really think?" I'm really paraphrasing it now because I don't want to dig my Quran out of my bag, which is in the other room. Uh, Do you really think that you could go on behaving like? Like this, being mean to people, being cruel, not helping the poor, abusing the downtrodden, and you're going to get something good out of this? 
Yeah. <laughs> we'll let you do this for a little while. We'll let yeah. you run rampant with it. But you're not going to get any, you know, when it's all said and done, you go, oh, my God, I wasted my life. Correct. And uh, there's a very similar quote in Romans that's in your book where right. it says, uh, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. It's almost the exact same words. That all hell broke loose. Rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. Made life yeah. hell on earth. Envy, wanton killing, bickering and cheating. Look at the mean-spirited, venomous, forked tongue. Bullies, swaggerers, insufferable windbags. <laughs> Sounds like a lineup of our cast here on Outlaw Radio. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, the, the world is full of people, and yet and these same people quite often will just say they're religious as can be. Right. And I figure somewhere in heaven Jesus is vomiting. So um, did, you, did you have a police union? We did. We had a police union, yes. And did, did you make any effort to fight your demotions? Oh, my gosh, of course. Yeah, I had a, I had a union lawyer uh, take the case to court and, uh, or before the board. And even they said, you know, this is a witch hunt. I mean, it was ridiculous. But there was, you know, their board with citizens, you know, in the community that were handpicked. So, I mean, the, 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 the odds were just stacked against me. And even with the union behind me, because they were like, you know, we got to, she's part of the union, we have to fight for her. You know, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't fight this thing because it was so, you know, it was coming from the head. It was coming from the sheriff. So I lost that I lost that case, and then when I filed a lawsuit, similar to what you were talking about, Burl, my, my uh, attorney got spooked when they broke into his office. Now, we don't know who they are, right? But mysteriously, his office is broken into, and all the, all the documentation pertaining to my case is all rif- rifled through. Isn't, so that a, isn't that a strange coincidence? Right? So he got spooked, and then he backed off my case. He didn't fight it anymore. He was like just a lame lawyer on the case because he didn't want to... Uh, he was afraid. I mean... Oh, yeah. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Right? It was sad, you know, and I even called... I called Gloria Allred. I said, Gloria, you need to come here to Vegas and take my case. This is crazy. You know, she had just done the uh, tailhook scandal with that naval officer, right. uh, female officer, and she, you know, she walked away with a good chunk of money. Well, as soon as I told her I was in Las Vegas, she goes, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> like, great. And I could have told you. Right. You know, ask someone who's been on the other side. They'll tell you. <laughs> so, exactly. So how far from this point uh, do you have left? How many years did you stay? I did 21 years. So no, the last, from this when they incident. demoted me two ranks, I did the last four years uh, on patrol as a sergeant. And I wasn't, my call sign was not 666. The union did step up to the plate and goes, you know what, this is total harassment. Uncalled for. This is a senior. She was a senior sergeant then. She's a senior sergeant now, and her call sign is 509. So I had a, a, just a regular squad of officers. And you know what, I just got back to basics again, having fun out on the street with the guys, you know, raising up guys that I thought would be good leaders. And here's what I tell the guys. Can I share this, guys? Because this is really powerful with this book. Sure. You know, I wrote this book out of my pain initially, and, and, it, and it was uh, it, it felt good to write it, but it, that's not the book you're, that you're reading, because I put that book away for a while while I got healed up, because I didn't want to be bashing people. We don't need any more of that. I wanted to, I rewrote the book out of my passion, because I wanted my book to make a difference, not only in, in people's lives, but in our community and in law enforcement in general. And now I have guys that I was, in fact, I tease all these guys because I said, you know, a lot of these guys now that were my enemies are my friends on Facebook. And they're all like, hey, uh, Lieutenant, uh, they call me LT. LT, uh, am I in your book? And I said, well, read, 
buy my book and read my book. You're, you're in the part about the windbag. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, these guys are now, you know, a lot of them have come to my book signing, and I've connect, reconnected with, with a lot of the guys. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many of these guys have come up to me. And a lot of times it's over coffee in private, but they're looking at me with tears in their eyes. And now they're feeling the pain of the injustice. Right. In fact, now they understand what they put me through. Because before it was just one of the boy games and they were just part of the group. That's why you can't harbor all that pain and resentment. Right. Because not only does it poison you, it keeps the doors shut for them coming to you and asking for, you know, in Judaism, there's two kinds of forgiveness you ask for. Those that you have to ask the person to forgive you. And we're coming up on this. Yeah, uh-huh, that's right, because Yom Kippur is coming up. Yippee Kippy. Yep, uh, yippee Kippy. One where you have to ask the person to forgive you. You can't just say, God, forgive me. You have to right. go to the person and say, will you please forgive me? Yeah. And you go three times. After three times, if they won't forgive you after three times, that's their problem. Then, and then there's the things where you ask God to forgive well, you. Well, you missed one. After after you have re- asked for and received forgiveness from all those you've grieved, you have to forgive yourself yes. for what you've done. That's a good, yeah. That's and then good. and then you can you can ask God for absolution. Wow! But uh, when you don't, then that door is shut. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a book called The Power of Forgiveness that came out probably about fifteen twenty years ago. And it has this, you know, you've seen that picture of that young girl, uh, the Vietnamese or Cambodian girl running and she's been hit by napalm. Oh, yeah. That terrifying, yes. horrifying picture. Yes. The guy who dropped that napalm on her sought her out. Oh, my gosh. And apologized to her. And she forgave him. And they went together and gave talks. Wow. On the power of forgiveness. And it's. Yeah. Forgiveness is very, very powerful. And if you hold on to that stuff, those resentments and anger and refuse to forgive, uh, you don't have to forget. But people do change. People do get transformed. They'll have a turnabout at the deepest seat of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my favorite ones, and and I talked to to Bill Washmuth. Uh, He was, uh, he's passed away now. He was the fellow, uh, the Coalition Against Malicious Harassment. He was in Hayden Hayden Lake, Idaho. And the neo-Nazis bombed his church, tried tried to kill him. Yeah. And we were chatting one night, uh, and he said, you know, you can't reason with these people. You can't sit down and, and try to reason them out of their extreme prejudice against Jews, blacks, and even everybody else that they, they hate and despise. What happens to make a difference is they will suddenly have a turnabout at the deepest seat of consciousness. Some, something usually connected with love will snap them. And this one particular guy, he's sitting there, and he wasn't raised this way. His parents couldn't figure out why he was such a wacko. But his kids came in the room and said, Dad, Mom won't let us watch TV anymore because she says there's too many niggers on TV. And all of a sudden, bam, goes, what the hell have I done to my kids? Wow. And he yeah. picked up the phone and called his parents and said, what do I do now? And they had him call uh, the Wiesenthal, Wiesenthal Center here in Los Angeles, Museum of Tolerance. And he uh, travels around and uh, he still has all the swastika tattoos and crap all over him. But he gives talks on how he got out of uh, that wacko stuff. But it always is something that uh, touches their heart, their soul, their spirit, whatever you want to call it, that causes the change. You can't, just like Captain Crunch says about sharks, you can't reason with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There Good was a, a, really, a really a fine film, American History X, 
Oh, yeah, we have to watch the director's cut, the one that the studios didn't hack to pieces. Yeah. Um, wow. And it's that story. Yeah, it's a fabulous one. It's amazing because uh, people do change. Absolutely. I have had people apologize to me. There was, uh, man, there was a guy that used to throw garbage at me. I mean, you'll I'll like this story. We got enough time to tell it. I think you'll get a kick out of it. When I was in high school, there was this group of guys who were just biggest jerks on the planet. I mean, they could have won a Guinness Book of World Records, biggest jerks. Yeah. And me being a Jewish kid, and they would throw garbage at me, call me dirty Jew, blah, 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 all this horrible stuff. So when I graduated high school, one of the great joys was knowing I would never have to see these guys again. <laughs> 20 years later... Uh, I went back to my hometown, and uh, I'm also a member of the Baha'i faith. There was a, a Baha'i prayer thing that night, and I went to it, and it was candlelight. And I got in a little bit late, and I sat down, and people were having prayers, you know, interreligious prayers and stuff. And they blew out the candles and turned on the lights, and I am face-to-face with this guy that used to throw garbage at me. Oh, my gosh. And my initial response was to come across the table and throttle him. <laughs> and I just looked. I mean, it was so such cognitive dissonance to see this guy at a praying for the unity of diverse races and religions that all people get along. <laughs> and I looked at it and I said, how long has it been since you changed? He said, about 10 years. He says, and I knew someday I would see you and I would apologize to you. Wow. And uh, so he did. But I still hadn't forgiven him. In, inside, I still wanted to throttle this guy. So I said to myself, I got to invite this guy over to my house for lunch and serve him with my own hands wow. to get over this. So I did. So how much strict nine? Uh, well, just enough. So but we're waiting at the end of the story. So he comes over to my house. The next day we have lunch. We sit outside. We talk for several hours. He gets up to leave. I shake his hand. Glad we got this all resolved. But I'm still feeling a little something, right? And he says, now i got to save the best for last. He said, God has a great sense of humor. He says, I married a Jewish girl. I said, well, that's wow. your punishment. See there? <laughs> that's a great story, bro. That's, that's a true story. Yeah, so perfect. People do change. There, there yes, are, they do. There are, what do you do for a living now? Or do you get a pension? Uh, very small. Because they, I was terminated from 21 years as an officer, uh, and I wasn't 50 years of age because we have an age. Even though I had 21 years in, I didn't have the age requirement, which was 50. So I was penalized 2.5% per year, and there was seven years. I was only 43 when they terminated my employment. So, yeah, I took a really big hit on my pension, a very small pension, hoping my book does well. And uh, what do you think? Do you think this will be a good movie, you guys? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think it would be a great yeah, movie. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, well, G.I. Jane. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think uh, we're going to get Demi Moore to play you. No, well, she's too old to play she's, now. She's too how about, how about uh, Jessica Alba? Sandra, Sandra Bullock? <laughs> too old. Too big. Too old, yeah. Too old, too tall. No, Jessica Alba, maybe. Anyway, we've, we've run out of time. The book is Bright Lights, Dark Places. Yeah, it's fascinating, informative, and spiritual all at the same time. And so it's a good combination of ingredients similar to a doctor's prescription. And you, of course, have earned the official uh, Outlaw Radio True Crime Uncensored title of Crime Hottie, which is... Wow. <laughs> that's Aaron Moriarty has that title, too, so you're a good company. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show, and uh, I'll let you know when it's up uh, in the archives. You can listen to it, all right? Perfect. Thanks, Pearl. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Bye-bye. All right, take care of you guys. Uh, you bye bye.
Great guest. Good book. Next week, uh, it's the 15th, right? Something like that. Yeah. Dr. Scott Bond returns. The uh, media guy turned criminologist and sociologist. we got a good lineup. And, soci- and sociopath. And sociopath. Well, that's us. We're the sociopaths. He's the sociologist. Magic Matt Allen and the demons. Oh, decadence, including Mark and myself. Ralphie is here. Hiya, Ralphie. Stand up. Oh, he is. Hi, Ralphie. It's good to see you. <laughs> Let's get retro. Play the hit.